0: Welcome to Risk Roundup. From electronic banking to PayPal to digital wallet systems, Winmo and Square, as the progression of non-cash transaction evolves rapidly, the advances in technology is fundamentally changing the way we pay for goods and services. Any financial transaction that we would have undertaken with cash in the past are now increasingly being undertaken in many different digital formats, While over the years, we have been completing financial transactions using credit cards and debit cards, it seems that even these digital solutions aren't innovative enough or to be made permanent or to be made de facto for the digital digital global age, which is changing every single day. So as the broader financial markets go through technology transformation, the competition in digital payment methods is getting fierce. And as a result today, cash, Seems to be no longer the dominant payment method across nations. So, when the world is going through a fierce battle between different modes of digital payments and is experiencing a rapid and growing use of diverse digital methods of recording, managing, and exchanging money in commerce and investment and daily life, it is important to understand and evaluate which technologies are leading the evolution in digital payments. Where is the blockchain playing a role? Why are we moving towards a cashless economy and what is going to be the impact of this cashless economy? To discuss cashless economy further, I am delighted to welcome Kerry Biniam to Risk Roundup. Kerry is the author of The Blockchain Alternative and is from Paris, France. Welcome, Kerry. Honored honor to have you on Risk Roundup.
1: Thank you so much for having me over as well, Jayshu.
0: Wonderful, case. Okay. So let's, uh, for the benefit of our global viewers and listeners, let's talk very briefly about what is the cashless economy and why are we moving towards a cashless economy?
1: Um, I think it's inevitable that it was going to happen. Um, digitization has been going on for quite a while, actually. So if we look at any kind of an asset over the past 30 to 40 years, we've been seeing a progressive transition to making it increasingly digital. And while this was happening quite easily, I wouldn't say easily, but it was happening quite rapidly for a number of assets, um, money, for some reason, seemed to have this kind of, um, it was getting digitized as well, but it was extremely centralized, whereas a lot of the, the digitization is getting increasingly decentralized. And what's happening today is it's just a lot more easier to function in um, a universe which is essentially getting more and more digital, to have a digitally native currency so I think it's it's just representative of the way that capitalism is evolving. Um, money is a bearer instrument. It is something which allows us to transact value. It is a representation or a proxy of value for any kind of an asset. And if your assets are getting increasingly digitized, then it just makes sense that the proxy of value that you're using for its transaction needs to be natively digital as well. So um, a lot of people probably don't know about it, or they probably do know about it, but around 97% of the existing cash already is digital. There's huge amounts of efficiencies which come with digitization, mostly with um, the reduction of um, transaction costs and um, the flattening of value chains. So it's also because of these kinds of um, efficiencies which we can't get through the regular fiat kind of a system that it makes more no sense to go towards a more digital universe.
0: Yes, very true. Now, when we look at the cash state of cashlessness across nations, what broader trends you see are you know being observed as far as the cashless economy goes? I mean, what the technology is the foundation. The digital technologies are you know kind of driving and pushing this uh, move towards the cashless economy. But when we look at the nations, what broader trends you are seeing that are either going to make those nations, you know, very effectively move towards the cashless economy or going to, you know, have a problem, you know, transferring or having the transformation towards the cashless economy.
1: Yeah, so transition is always a tough thing, um, especially when you've got uh, systems which have been in place for a couple of hundred years, which have been tried and tested and which have a certain um, trust attachment to it. Um, People are used to using a certain methodology of operation. And when you say that, okay, fine, we're going to go towards something that's more digital, that's something that's a bit more different, you can't use the same kind of rules and regulations which you normally use in order to control something which is a physical asset. So that kind of transition is something which a lot of nation states are realizing. But at the same time, if your economy is increasingly digital, then you have to be able to to, to kind of adapt to that. Uh, Adaptation takes time. Um, And I have personally worked with a couple of people who are involved in regulation. Um, The reason I wrote my book was because I was trying to address that transition factor more than anything else. Um, And I'm happy to say I'm very optimistic about it. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people who are in regulation who are talking about this very, very seriously today. And it's not a conversation which you have to kind of educate them about the basics. They know the jargon. They they understand a lot of the complexities. Uh, sometimes they ask you questions which you know you, you've not even thought about. But that's because it's normal. They're insiders. Um, so I think it's it's never going to be easy. But there's a lot of progress that's being made. The real challenge is kind of reducing that that time gap that exists between the um, commercial sector which because there's a lot of open innovation in which there's a liberation of ingenuity uh, and a lot of cognitive diversity allows for build up of, of, of new kinds of economic models at a scale which is very very rapid and on the other hand you've got the, the, the institutions which are you know the, they are the framework on which this economy works and they're desperately trying to adapt to this new kind of economy um, so there's always a gap between the two of them um, and what we're seeing today is, is, is the reduction of that to a certain extent.
0: Yes, no, very true. There is always a transition phase that is very complex and it involves a lot of change management. And there, is, there are a lot of uh, parallel developments, parallel progress needs to happen when we are trying to re-establish, redefine and redesign an entire you know new economic system. It is... Uh, uh, it, it takes a huge amount of effort and it's very complex. So it, it's totally understandable that the, each nation is at a different maturity curve. So uh, that when we talk about digitization and the, the digitalization of uh, all the systems and processes and all, each nation is at a very different state. So it's going to be very complex uh, task to bring everyone up to the speed and at the same level. So it, it's going to take probably years before you uh-huh. able to...
1: I'd add just a little kind of, you know, a different angle on that. Um, I agree with everything that you said, um, um, but there's a silver lining in all of this in which, you know, if you have to upgrade every kind of system, um, then a lot of the problems which actually exist with any form of digital transformation is attached to the legacy system that already exists in place. So if you look at a lot of banks, for example, I'm talking about commercial banks, you know, we don't even have to talk about uh, sovereign banks. You'll kind of see that their IT systems, the yeah. spaghetti structure, in which a lot of the base code is still done in COBOL. Um, and to find someone who can actually transfer or, to, you know, update those things, um, it's very, very hard to do. So this is why I started getting interested in the blockchain, because my primary motivation to understand this aspect of economics was related to the fact that I was trying to figure out, is there an alternative definition to capitalism, which is more in line with the current market structure and the market economy that we have? Because I find that there's a dissonance between the two. And what the blockchain is more than anything else is an infrastructure technology. So if you are looking at different kinds of nation states, which are at you know different levels of maturity in terms of their digitalness, you could say, um, you can either try and do a sequential upgrade process, which is what a lot of them have done for today, or you now have an alternative in which you say, oh, we can kind of create a new infrastructure. We can use a new way to build up um, a digital economy using a new plumbing to a certain extent. So your, your grid work, your, your, your skeletal structure. Can be revamped using an alternative technology, and I think that's that's the silver lining because it, it's it's an equalizer to a certain extent, which we didn't have before.
0: Sure, no, I understand your point, but at the same time, you also have to, uh, we also have to take that into account that whenever there is consumer facing. Uh, a change in technology or system or services, it is at the end of the day, people who would be using those services or using those systems. So here, if you're talking about the payment system, then if you are looking at Asia or Europe or Africa, I mean, not Europe, Europe and the United States, you know, and a Western country world, yeah. uh, there are a lot of, you know, literacy about the computers and how to the smartphones yeah. and all that. But if you're looking at uh, several other regions of the world, There are a lot of people who are not uh, computer literate. And here we are talking about uh, using this system, digital systems uh, and having a mobile, you know, payment systems or having a blockchain based systems or any other technology based systems. So that requires computer literacy and to bring everyone up to the speed. That is a huge effort. So I do understand, you know, from the uh, the backend system and mm-hmm. those legacy systems, it's easy to, you know, uh, to make each nation come, you know, at the same level, because we can skip several generations. They don't have to go through what Western world has gone through uh, in uh, making progressive, uh, you know, transition. But There is still a lot of effort that would be required to uh, bring all the individuals across nations and make them computer literate to be able to benefit from this uh, uh, economic uh, environment that we are developing. But having said that... uh, I mean, it's not just that the credit cards that are helping to spell the demise of cash. We, we have seen over the years, mobile phones, mobile payments have, has also accelerated the move away from the hard cash currency. Now, which technologies are playing a critical role in triggering the demise of cash? It is not what I see. It's not one technology, but it's several technologies that are playing a collective role.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, technologies are essentially tools, right? And, and tools are always used to attack a certain kind of a problem. So if you've got inefficiencies which are happening in one system, then people are going to try to exploit that to solve a problem. And, you know, first it started off with credit cards, um, and then it started off with, you know, different forms of payment, like the M-Pesa movement, which happened in, in, in Africa. Um, and today it's blockchain. Um, and irrespective of the kind of technology, I think the writing is pretty clear on the wall. That if you look at existing cash space systems, there's high amounts of, um,
2: um,
1: um, what's the word I'm looking for? The opposite of transparency, actually. (laughs) So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know what happens with the the countries that actually print fiat money um, have an incentive to keep it going on because they extract seniorage from it. There's a huge amount of control that comes from it. Um, And so there is a certain kind of political impetus in order to ensure that the existing system works because it's been tried and tested and it benefits certain groups of people. What we're seeing actually with these cashless systems, I mean, I think it's important to understand the the cultural context behind it as well because with more and more technology coming into the world, what we're seeing is an essential breakdown of the um, existing mechanistic hierarchies which exist in any economy. Um, As these hierarchies become you know, as they get broken down more and more because more people are able to access information easily through the internet, et cetera, et cetera. It changes this collectivistic ethic, which normally exists in um, hierarchical organizations towards a more rugged individualism in which each and every individual is more liberated to create value and ownership of value. So if this is actually happening, then it makes more sense for you to have a digital currency or a way in which you can procure value and have it individually and transact between yourselves because the existing architecture is, is in a state of collapse um, so you need to have technologies which can address that and allow for this liberation to happen at an accelerated pace so I agree with what you said that yeah there is a certain amount of literacy that is required for people um, but quite honestly a lot of people don't even know how the internet works you, you talk to people and you say, do you know what TCP IP is and they're like eh So (laughs) I think at the end of the day, if you can give someone, even in a a poor country, if they've got access to the internet via a smartphone, and through that they can learn and at the same time they can create value and they now have a transaction mechanism, which is natively aligned to this new architecture, then you're talking about a paradigm shift. And that's what people need to understand more than anything
0: else. Of course that that is a para- that is going to be paradigm shift, but it also brings you give everyone you know across nation let's say smart tools with internet connection and the ability to use these you know cashless uh, transactions you know irrespective of what format they use, whether it's Apple pay or whether it's uh, any other you know system uh, blockchain or whatever other system that uh, you know that nation or uh, that individual prefers. But when it comes to, you know, we we also know the complex security challenges cyberspace brings. So cybersecurity is, you know, a huge problem. And now if individuals are not savvy enough in computer literacy, I mean, here we are talking about the move that I see is that uh, with these wallets and digital wallets and uh, uh, cryptocurrencies that everyone is going to become their own bank in the coming years. That's what the trend looks like. So you will be every each individual will be responsible for its own security for uh, protecting their own uh, money, you know, in any format Mm -hmm. that is on their uh, smartphone or on their uh, laptops or computers. So they don't have that kind of computer literacy. How to protect? What kind of Mm -hmm. antivirus programs to keep? Or what to do? What not to to do on social media? What not to do on social media? There are a lot of variables, you know, coming to play here when we are talking about. Uh moving away from centralization, moving away uh, from uh, the system that somehow like banks and, you know, other systems that protects the consumers, if that if their money is lost, that, you know, they would be refunded, you know, or uh, they won't be responsible for that if cybersecurity breach is happening in banks. then, But here, when we are trying to develop a system where individuals will be responsible on their own, that's a whole different ballgame. And I'm not sure nations are ready for that, because even in Western countries, we don't see the security, uh, you know, savviness that uh, should be there, you know, if we are moving so rapidly towards uh, digital systems, but uh, that is our topic of whole or the discussion because <laughs> the is a very very complex issue that would need to be addressed if we are trying to give that kind of power to indiv- each and every individual across nations yeah. to be their own bank, and that's where I see a lot of concerns. But as, let's talk about this, you know, blockchain. So as we, I mean, the fundamental idea of no central authority that. Uh, we are working on that. We see in the blockchain model of decentralization, the possibilities are so huge. Now, when we look at all the innovations that could help secure the client facing or the customer base uh, across nations, uh, the potential with what blockchain can do—if it's a uh, you know banking or tra- uh, capital markets or you know trading or exchanges overall economic system, the possibilities are so huge. So where do you see the blockchain or how do you see the blockchain playing, uh, playing a very effective role if we talk about just the payment markets? So, so pay, 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 payment markets, I can
2: for some reasons.
1: Payment yeah. yeah. So the payment markets are not really my, my area of speciality. Um, I mean, I know a little bit about it. Um, I think pay, payment markets within the blockchain is kind of like a low hanging fruit. You know in terms of the application of blockchain and if you look at the original projects which were started off with blockchain let's say in 2014 2015 especially um, the first markets which these blockchain entrepreneurs went and attacked was the payment market and what they were essentially able to do was reduce that transaction cost which normally happens when you're making any kind of transaction right um, this is something which I think is really really because the only reason that we outsource trust and pay for that outsourcing to a bank is because they're insuring this right and they extract a heavy fee from it um, now, I don't mind paying for it because I know that if I'm paying 2.5% for a transaction, it's because of the fact that the bank behind me is trying to ensure that there's the ALM and the KYC is done. And there's a lot of regular, regulatory scrutiny, which is done in order to ensure that, you know, we're not funding the right, wrong kind of initiatives, that there's protection for the consumer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so I'm happy about it. But when I start hearing about stuff like um, Western Union charging 30% because I have to send money to, um, an underdeveloped country, uh, I think that's daylight robbery. Now, keeping in mind that also a lot of the people who use um, services like the Western Union, um, sending money to countries which are underdeveloped where there's, there's a lot of unbanked, so they don't have an option they have to use this. Um, and as a result of it, you know, the Western Union essentially has a monopoly in, in saying that, OK, fine, we are the new service which can allow you to, to provide, which can allow you to transfer value this way. So, yeah, we're going to put this, this really, really high price point, extracting value from the poorest of, 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 of a community. So I, I don't agree with that. And then you have this new technology that comes inside and says that, hey, we can change the way that this is actually happening. You will still pay a transaction fee. But because it's a decentralized network and it's distributed, the transaction fees can be very, very less. And all of a sudden, you've created an alternative to that. So it's no surprise to me that, you know, the existing incumbents are extremely worried about it. It's no surprise to me that companies like Earthport. Uh, partnered with Ripple in order to ensure that by using Ripple's technology, they could reduce the amount of um, money that they were actually spending it for for settling interbank settlement because that's essentially what Earthquare does. Um, And they're able to do that within the billions, their savings are huge. So this is an efficiency, it's a big efficiency. It is helping uh, reduce the existing oligopolies which have existed in payment markets today. And I think uh, any kind of competition which enters any kind of a sector um, is a step in the right direction.
0: Yes, no, I I hear your point on that and you made an interesting uh, analysis on the insurance part that why we have to pay those extra fees. And I I see that as we go towards this uh, cashless economy and as everyone becomes their own bank, I think we'll have to somehow come up with an insurance model uh, which uh, protects the individual consumers because at the end of the day, everyone will need security, whether the banks provide that security. Uh, to the consumers, or you know, the insurance companies provide that security uh, directly to the consumers. But we will not be able to walk away from the security model because uh, nobody is uh, expert enough to protect themselves when it comes to uh, security in cyberspace. It's a very huge, you know, complex challenge, and we. To come up with a model. But that's again a topic of another discussion. It's very complex and there's a lot to discuss because we are redefining, redefining systems and we'll have to at the same time uh, take into consideration all those variables that provides the security, all those uh, risks we will need to identify because we do, while we want to move away from the, it seems like the nation you know, nations wants to move away from that centralized authority and go decentralized. We still need to consider and you know uh, put together efforts to how that how can we uh, at the same time in parallel pro um, create an in, uh, insurance structure framework or security framework so those things still need to be identified but it seems that the blockchain technology is being uh, Signaled by so many as the ultimate black, uh, I mean, back office makeover by, for the overall financial industry. So,
2: hmm.
0: I mean, we are not talking only about the payment in the uh, aspect of it, but the yeah. overall financial industry. So, do you see the blockchain circumventing the global banking system entirely?
1: Well, I hope so. <laughs> That's kind of like the the, the thesis that I've, I've 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 based my my work on. Um, And it's also the project that I'm involved in right now, which is called Money by Design, is essentially trying to look at it from an institutional standpoint. So in my book, um, The Blockchain Alternative, what I explored as a concept was what would happen if we tried to create a sovereign level blockchain? Like imagine that, you know, a, a country level blockchain existed, which would be some kind of a mega blockchain, which could be simplistic to a certain extent. But which would allow uh, an entire economy to function on on it and then you could you could still have private blockchains and public blockchains which exist you know as they do today but they would have some kind of girder which would be the sovereign level blockchain and um it's not just for back office operations i mean back office operations is again that's that's a that's a low-hanging fruit kind of a situation yeah definitely it's going to help in that and that's the reason why these banks are throwing millions into it Um, I just saw BBVA, for example, I just read an article uh, recently, which was able to issue its first loan of $75 using a smart contract. So they're definitely exploring it, an infrastructure upgrade that they can have, um, and a new kind of partnership that they can have with the private sector, which they were not able to do before. Um, I think the real potential of the blockchain goes much further than that. There's a potential which can be explored from the private sector, and that is... There's a minutiae of detail that we can get into um, because the granularity is so advanced. But from just the the banking system per se, the, yes, the back office operations will be kind of like the first things to go. But then you can start thinking about it in, in much more different ways. Smart contracts can start op, you know, um, automating a lot of the, the functionality, which actually uses a lot of people today, which is in tandem with the way that fintech is anyway changing the banking sector. So, you know, this goes hand in um, hand in glove with machine learning, deep learning and all those different kinds of technologies. That's like a front end, you could say, application. This is more like, you know, onto the scenes. Um, and the reason that I was trying to explore this idea from a sovereign level was because I said, if we move to the blockchain, can we start thinking about new monetary policy tools? So that's the kind of level of thinking that I'm, I'm thinking about. I th- it makes sense to me for us to switch towards a blockchain-based economic system, not just because of the fact that you'll have a most stringent and secure back office operation. That, that, that is definitely going to be there, and it comes with complications. There's scalability issues. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, that needs to be hashed out. Um, but there is an, an, another incentive for banks to kind of get into it, and create new kinds of tools and create new kinds of operations which have not been able to do today and that's that's what i'm exploring right now with the money by design project
0: sure no that that's very exciting and uh, i think uh, if we talk about the technology playing a huge role for the overall banking system then then we we can cut out all the inefficient uh, intermediaries banking Mm -hmm. intermediaries that uh, i think it's probably where uh, the focus is also and we can Mm -hmm. The banks can also cut their infrastructure cost and uh, increase the speed of execution. So there are a lot of, you know, benefits that the banks are seeing in uh, exploring the blockchain model to move forward. But the ability of a blockchain technology to provide right. an unforgeable record of identity, that's what, you know, everyone uh, is focusing on right now to have uh, a very, you know, that that no one can uh, compromise their identity, and yeah. uh, there is no fraud involved, and things like that. That yeah. the history of individual transactions is also, you know, one area that is being uh, explored. I think. How do you see that being a useful application when we are looking at the payment industry for uh, without having an uh, unforgeable record of identity? How mm-hmm. will we? How will the blockchain be able to provide? that uh, benefits or the application to the payment industry if we haven't sorted that out yet?
1: Well, I don't know about the payment industry per se, but I have often asked my students a question. I give a couple of classes in a couple of business schools. And I asked the question the other day to a bunch of students because they, they needed a subject to write a master's thesis on. And I said, okay, tell me, how would it change if a company was structured around the principles of the blockchain, which are the principles of transparency? So you know, look at look at the way that HSBC has been essentially just flaunting its its its, its might. It's been involved with money laundering for the Sinova cartel. I mean, the, the history of HSBC. Uh, there's a great documentary which came out earlier in the year by RT. Um, shows how this 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 bank essentially, um, pretty much does what it wants. It's like a gangster bank, you could say to a certain extent. Uh, yet, even though there's this information that has come out, you know, there's a lot of investigative journalism that has happened that shows us this, this proof. If you walk through any airport today, and I know this because I've been traveling quite a bit in the past months, the first thing you see in most airports are these advertisements of HSBC, which line the entire uh, walkway as you're going towards to catch a plane, and they're all talking about how they're having a social impact and liberating hope, and you know, all this hippie stuff. So. Think about the fact that if you were operating on a blockchain and your payments were done on the blockchain and every time you were involved in some kind of a negative kind of a payment or something which had a bad effect on society, um, it would actually affect the way that your structure is there because now you have an unfalsifiable memory and that changes the entire strategy that a bank is going to be able to take, right? So we we push away the corpus. We change the existing narrative, um, which has become this mantra um that hasn't been changed for a long time and I, I for me that's more important i mean processes and payments yes they're very very important but in what context you know that that's that's the kind of level at which i'm trying to operate in right now because i have massive issues mostly because of my past and experiences that i've had in, in the past with the current uh, capitalistic system and I think here is an opportunity for us. Yes, we can have efficiencies with back end and payments, all those different things, but also create a new kind of organizational structure and a societal structure in the process.
0: Yes, of course. You know, Because the question is not whether the disruption that we are witnessing today will transform the overall banking and capital markets, but rather how will they be done, you know? So the the young generation, the students that you're talking to, they are the right people to, you know, think about these kind of uh, uh, problems because they are overcoming tomorrow and the the young people have so much uh, ideas and uh, imagination ability that they, they are the ones who will be able to guide or will be able to play a major role in how to... Uh, you know, make that transformation because we here, like you just said, we are trying to create a new organizational paradigm and we are trying to create new kinds of future, new kinds of digital savviness and mm-hmm. a whole new world of payments that, uh, is, uh, you know, giving uh, security, that is giving privacy, that is, uh, uh, taking away the frauds and, you know, corruption and, uh, it establishes trust and transparency. That's what we are looking at. So can you give some examples of disruptive innovation that is occurring both across business-to-business and consumer-facing areas of financial services uh, based on your observation?
1: Um, Business-to-business, I think one great area which is really being explored right now is just with supply chain. Um, Blockchain is having like a really great impact over there. Um, I personally know about a company that's based over here in Paris, but they operate in New York as well, which is called Stratum. And Stratum has essentially created their own proof. So they don't use proof of work, they use proof of uh, process. Um, And it's, it's quite simplistic, actually, if you look at their actual protocol and the way that it functions, it's really, really simple. But what they're essentially doing is they're using a new way in which you can track you know, from the production of something to the end user, the entire journey that happens, the supply chain journey, they're using the blockchain in order to to, to validate and show different aspects of the of the, of the transition from point A to point B. Um, this has massive implications, especially when you look at uh, what happens during the supply chain of pharmaceuticals. So pharma companies today, they spend a ridiculous amount of money in order to ensure against counterfeit, you know, especially of drugs, certain kinds of drugs which, which, are, which are produced. Um, If you can blockchainize that, which is a complete B2B solution from the point of of, of creation to the point of of sale to the end of it, um, you can be able to ensure that, you know, if there's any tampering that's happening during the supply chain process, and that has massive savings for the supply chain industry and definitely for the pharma companies. So I, I know that Stratum is already doing this this stuff with a bunch of different companies. I don't want to say which companies they're working with because I don't work there. I don't want to get into many problems with it. But just if you look at that area, is B2B, that's that's one area. Uh, another example would be B2B, and this might be you know a bit of a um, it might require a bit of a change in mindset. But we now have this concept of of, of digital commodity and a sense of digital scarcity. So before your commodities were like, you know, oil and land and this and that, and that still exists. But in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an economy in which 65% is um, based on services, and most services are digital today, or they, they use a digital um, platform in order to, to execute that. Uh, you find out that there's new kinds of commodities which are extremely digital, like bandwidth, like computation power, like file sharing and, and storage and all those different kinds of things. So. What we're seeing today is that a lot of these new companies, which are being created, like so, so there's IPFS, there's Filecoin, there's storage, uh, there's Ethereum. All of these are essentially ways in which you can quantify, measure, and um, monetize these digital assets, these digital commodities, because these are the new commodities in the economy, and that's to be seen right there. So. Today, if I need to store my information, I've got to use something like uh, Amazon Web Services, right? Amazon Web Services, I'm paying something around 80, 90 cents per gigabyte of storage. Um, now you look at a blockchain. And Amazon, by the way, even though it's based on the internet, uh, it's completely siloed. I mean, the internet has become this weird siloed structure. We switch from Amazon to Google to Netflix to something else, but it's, it's always in, to Facebook, and it's always in these you know, these silos that exist on the internet. Um, and when we put information on AWS, we're paying this amount of money, and that's, that's pretty much it. There's a couple of other options, but they're all around the same price range. Now you have someone who comes up with a blockchain solution. So there's storage, S-T-O-R-J, um, and they say, hey, you know what? We can connect different people on a decentralized um, architecture. And let's say that Jayashree's got one terra of, of, of uh, um, free space sitting around at home. You're not really doing anything with it. Um, let's create that as an incentive. And now you can rent it. And you, there's a coin which, coin, which essentially you can sell your um, free space. And I'm looking for, you know, sleep play in which you're going against a mega incumbent and if there's anything that we've seen the decentralized systems that the scalability is so much more faster so you know this is like a pure b2b play that's happening right there coming to 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 consumers this is where it's it's going really bananas right now (laughs) it's going so fast it's it's hard to keep up um and
0: (laughs) this new model of sharing economy that we are seeing yeah. I mean anybody can access uh, with this you know sharing platforms that are being developed yeah. like that anybody can access anybody else's computer or data storage or all kinds of you know capabilities so yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's, it's,
2: not, it's
1: not really accessing but yeah you you can you can connect to them and
0: the accessing is, in the sense yeah. that you can connect to that you there's, can a, bond. there's a bond to connect yeah. to that yeah. and you can then store your uh, data and that's a very interesting models that are being developed yeah. but, i mean uh, he, he, i mean see the kind of ch- amazing innovations that are happening like amazon uh mm-hmm. I I think uh, they're also starting the cashless store where, you know, people won't have to even uh, stop at the cash out. Uh, yeah. I'm waiting for that in Paris. <laughs> so very interesting innovations are coming, but the, this distributed ledger technology uh, is, I mean, is likely going to be the foundation of these next generation financial services infrastructure uh, that are being, you know, de- defined and designed and being developed. So, uh, but but they also need some uh, other you know technologies to uh, be effective. And the when mm-hmm. blockchain needs to merge with other transformative technologies. Yeah. Uh, they, I mean, single-handedly blockchain will not be able to do that. It provides a digital platform, but it requires the other, you know, integration of other technologies to yeah. uh, make it successful, the whole transformation. So which technologies do you think are merging with blockchain today? Uh, And we'll need to merge tomorrow if we want to create that effective transformation uh, Mm. based on blockchain.
1: Yeah, so technology has got this weird tendency to feed off other technology. I mean, if you look at any kind of innovation, I mean, innovation is a very loose term. When people say innovative, you know, I I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, But if you look at the way that uh, ingenuity or new discoveries are made, it's something which is called the combinatorial theory of technological evolution. And what you find is one technology essentially permutates and competates with another kind of technology to create a new technology and you can see this you know this work done by Arthur Kozler um, even E.O. Wilson he wrote a lovely book called Consilience more recently you've got people like Stephen Wolfram who um, who created Wolfram Alpha Um, they've all kind of analyzed this, this stuff and even Kevin Kelly has written about this And what you find is every time you have any kind of technology, it will reach a certain kind of um, maturity level, you could say, which makes it capable of now interacting with other technologies and doing different kinds of things to create something new. With blockchain, there's so many ways in which this can go. First of all, if you're looking at these new digital commodities that I mentioned about, um, just in those commodities, there's so much innovation, there's so many different types of technologies that it, it can mix and match over there. So a simple example would be to look at these uh, distributed grids, electricity grids. So you've got these electricity grids today, which are, you know, the solar panels. So there's a lovely project which is happening in Utrecht in the Netherlands, in which what these guys have been able to do is, um, just as you've got Moore's law, you've got Swanson's law, which is the um, efficiency of um, solar cells to be able to convert it into electricity. And because of this, you know, new capability of creating more and more energy with solar panels, this neighborhood in Utrecht said, hey, why don't we kind of capture as much energy as we can with these solar panels that we've installed at home and we can create an alternative to the existing uh, electricity grid which is provided by the government. Now, think about the fact that every electron that is produced from the solar panel thingy is a new digital asset. And now if you want to be able to trade it with the adjacent neighborhood which doesn't have um as many solar grids as you do or has no solar grids at all you cannot quantify it at a minuscule level because what a a, a blockchain allows you to do or any kind of cryptocurrency allows you to do is have a large amount of divisibility right so you mean a a euro or a dollar can only be divided to 100 cents but a satoshi is like one eighth of, of of a bitcoin right so you can divide it up to eight decimal points And so you've got this ability right now to quantify these micro, very, very small digital commodities. And so you can see a natural partnership happening between new kinds of advances in solar production, uh, electricity production, and this technology over here. So that's like a very straightforward one. If you wanna keep it digital to digital, you can see there's a lot of work that's happening right now in terms of machine learning and blockchain. So you've got all this information that's being created with these transactions and this ledger in which you can see each and every transaction that's happening. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? I mean, this is a great thing to to be data mined, right? You can start looking at how people are actually analyzing this information to kind of get an understanding of the economy in general, right? Or at least in in a certain kind of economic um, sphere. And this changes a lot of things because what we're learning in economics today is there's huge inefficiencies with efficient markets hypothesis and rational expectations theory. I mean, I have never met anyone who's rational. That that, does, that phrase doesn't really make any sense to me. And we're you, using DSG models, dynamic, stochastic general equilibrium models, to make monetary and fiscal policy, which is based on efficient markets hypothesis. Yes. So why can't we look at complexity economics instead? And complexity economics is based on Um, looking at the interactions between agents, okay? This is agent-based modeling. You require data for it. You have psychological behavioral economics to understand how the agent thinks. But you also need to know what the interaction is in terms of the value being transferred between people. And if you've got this database with all this information on the blockchain, You can use machine learning techniques in order to data mine that information. Now, it's not easy to do it. You can't just use the regular machine learning techniques that we use already to kind of, you know, look at a bunch of cat images and figure out, oh, that's a cat. Um, This is a bit more complicated to that. But um, I know that there's a lot of people looking at it right now. And if you follow, you know, there's a bunch of these blogs on, on medium and stuff like that. This is definitely something that people are doing. I don't know if they're trying to do it in the context of what my motivation is which is an alternative way of doing monetary policy and moving away from the sufficient markets hypothesis business um but there's definitely that potential over there so just with those two examples you've got like a hardware kind of interrelationship and you've got like a software to software interrelationship
0: i'm glad you mentioned that and complexity economics i think i heard the term first time it's interesting you know concept so, yeah, no, definitely I will look into that and uh, have someone on Risk Roundup to discuss that because it does look like a very interesting topic and uh, how, where we are moving and what uh, efforts are going to be necessary in the coming years. Now, if you look at the economic system,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I, mean, I mean, blockchain is giving us that capability to imagine, to move assets and liabilities and risk and rewards across borders, you know, across nations, geographical boundaries and between institutions without paying huge transfer fees. That's probably one of the bigger incentives that, you know, everyone was excited about. That uh, is what technology, uh, blockchain technology promises us. Now, by removing barriers such as banks and prohibitive costs and uh, waiting periods and regulatory restrictions and uh, all the service providers connecting with the blockchain technology, it can open up so many systems all the, probably all the systems to entire nations, it's, it will be a very different kind of transformation where we are not just looking at, you know, in silo, the financial system or economic system. We are talking about the opening up of all the systems because it, it, this financial system is integrated with all other, you know, systems across yeah. nations. So yeah. this, we are talking about, you know, opening up of each and every system across nations. So. How do you see this being perceived across nations, as it will open up all system to all nations? Do you see that, it, like, this uh, de- decision makers across nations, or government, or industries, or organizations, academia, or uh, any other you know uh, player, they are being excited about this? Oh
2: yeah, oh yeah,
1: it's 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 happening. It's it's happening in different pockets. So it's 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 an emergent trend. You know, any technology, when it comes inside, it goes through that, that curve and it says adoption and then there's a of dissolution and then it becomes mainstream. And different people are at different points of it. So I remember when I was working, I, was, I used to work in academia before, um, till I realized that uh, I wasn't suited for it. <laughs> um, and when I spoke about blockchain over we there, and I had to actually force the school to give a lecture for free. Because I was like, students need to l- learn about this. Okay, so this is in 2014, actually. Um, and when I mentioned this the first time, a lot of the people who were working with me in academia, they were like, yeah, you know, it's a cool tech, but I don't see the real value behind it. And now what we're seeing is as more and more people in academia, either from the natural sciences or even from the social sciences, who are realizing the transformative effect of it. And just today, I was looking at this website, which is called PeerWith or something like that, which is a way in which academics can come and put their um, papers or their research on their website. And they've created a token in which other people can 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 kind of gauge how well, how good the, the, the thing is. So it's like peer review, you could say to a certain extent. And the number of likes or the number of uploads that are received is converted directly into a token, which can then be exchanged And so you're giving a financial incentive directly to the academic which goes completely against this very, very macabre model of academic publishing today. It was one of the main reasons I ran away from academia because I just didn't agree with this model that is used today in in terms of academic publishing. It creates these very weird structures and mental maps which I don't agree with. So just in academia, you can see that coming to countries. I mean, you can look at what's happening today with Singapore. Singapore is, is, you know, they've been funding Project Ubin for a long time. It's made some tremendous progress. Um, the papers were released pretty recently as well. So Singapore is and the MAS is looking to, to say that, okay, fine. We can use this in order to, to, to govern our economy in a very different way. You go to Dubai and Dubai is trying to do a lot of their uh, paperwork. They've kind of focused on that because apparently they have some issues with the paperwork to switch that to the blockchain. You go to places like um, Iran, they are planning to issue uh, their own cryptocurrency, which is backed by assets, which is a kind of an offshoot of what was done by Venezuela. Um, and all these different countries are, are looking at it in different ways because they have their own individual um, hype cycles. They have their own ways of of saying that this is my economy. And that's what I think is very, very powerful because it allows for context relevance, which it's not that one size fits all kind of a thing. The protocol has got so many different elements in it. You know, they have different blockchains, different protocols, different elements within it that you can adapt it to, to, to the environment in which you're immersed in or the economic environment in which you're immersed in. And the fact that you've got all these countries thinking about this and trying to understand what they can actually do with it is an indication of the fact that they are also looking for solutions. They're not just trying to be um, spectators. They're trying to be contenders, which changes the playing field completely because now you have a common language to talk to the private sector. And I think that's what is missing today, because what you have today is this (laughs) very weird situation. You've got these crypto enthusiasts and these paragons of, of, of blockchain Who are very smart and I love what they do and I follow their things and you know, thank God for them. Uh, And they're creating this kind of digital utopia in which for them it's all about, you know, um, Austrian economics models and you're seeing like the reincarnation of Hayek's denationalization of currency happening on this side. And then you've got the centralized system over here, which is these legacy systems. And they're centralized, this is decentralized. These guys are saying we can do this, these guys are saying, oh no, we can't do that. And in between, you've got the the regulator who's kind of running around in between the two, desperately trying to make a handshake between the two of them. When you see that these countries are thinking about using a blockchain for addressing their own economic issues, you now realize that both these people are talking the same language, which allows for a better way to create policy. It allows for a better way to understand what the issues are because until and unless you have the sep- if you if you carry on having the separation, there's no chance that you can be able to, to, to fix the macroeconomic issues. And my specification, and I'll just end on the, that point, that it's very, very important to understand that public debt becomes, uh, uh, sorry, private debt ultimately becomes public debt. It's something which Adair Turner calls economic pollution. So if you have problems over here, and you're not speaking the same language as this system, you're creating more complexity. If you're at least in the same kind of system, which allows for a greater amount of transparency, maybe you can have better detection. Maybe you'll be able to figure out what's actually happening. Maybe it'll be easier to see systemic risk, right? Yes. Because of this transparency. And that's, that's, that's my motivation of trying to identify a niche within the blockchain universe selected macroeconomics um, because it's the field that i was most comfortable with
0: sure no, that, that that's an interesting point uh, Gary. but i mean if you're talking uh, talking about the transparency that yeah. uh, benefits that it would provide yeah. it also you know brings many complex challenges because right now if you see uh, that um, as we withdraw cash from the society, and India, I think, is a good example of that. They tried to do uh, demonetization and they their yeah, efforts. It's a bad
2: example. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: It, it's, uh, if you try, if they go towards that, then, uh, you know, across many nations, you see today that there is still negative interest rates. And yeah. uh, making the idea of a cashless economy, is creating more complex challenges because does a fully cashless society, do you think uh, it would make a really good economic sense? Because there are so many complex challenges. One is a negative interest rate. And then there is, uh, uh, you know, if it is electronic payment. Pe- individuals, the people, citizens, they lose the power yeah. of actually uh, making, Uh, seeing you know how much they are spending they won't realize because you just you know slide the credit card you slice you know pay with the phone you don't realize you have a cash in your hand Uh, i
1: mean i mean it's it's no no one is saying that we have to completely get rid of cash if it makes sense to have cash in certain situations yeah go for it you know no one's telling you that you need to get rid of it my question in that case is to say what is what is the balance like who is coming up with the decision in which they're saying that okay fine we need to have that much money in, in digital and this much money in cash so first let's have that conversation um secondly what you mentioned about india i mean india was a really bad example of of demonetization It was hastily done um uh, there's been a lot of criticism about it and uh, the the man who actually came up with the execution of the project was totally unqualified for it and that's come out later on so I don't know what the Modi government was thinking when they did it, it seemed to be a good idea at the time, but they should have probably, you know, done it in a much more, they should have done it at a rate at which it could be absorbed and not in this way in this like, okay, fine, we are taking away this money. I mean, you know, what's going on? <laughs> um, secondly, your, your point about negative interest rates. The reason that we have negative interest rates is simply because of the fact that every time a government tries to control the economy they use you know a couple of tools one of the tools that they have is interest rates another tool that they have is controlling inflation but let's think about it in a different way imagine that instead of having dollars or euros we started shifting towards a system which was like a dollar coin or a euro coin Now remember the point that i made about the fact that you can divide one dollar to 100 cents which you can divide one uh, digital currency to eight or 10 or 15 places so let's say that the economy has got i don't know um 10 billion euros right and that 10 billion euros is represented by 10 billion euro coins now if i want to be able to increase or control the monetary supply what am i doing today i'm pumping money which gets expanded through the factional banking process and i'm trying to control all of that with that Lever of interest rate and inflation. Instead of that, if I have a digital uh, system, cashless system, in which I have Eurocoin, instead of adding more money, I shift the decimal place to the right. So before you had, I don't know, uh, let's say 10,000 euros, because I've shifted that decimal place to the right, it's now become 100,000. The volume of cash is essentially the same, but the quantity of units of, of money has now increased. And you can do this, you know, up to eight decimal places, 15 decimal places. You now have a new um, monetary policy tool, which you didn't have before. And now that's, that's, that's what I think is interesting to explore. That's just one very simplistic example. It's a bit counterintuitive because we're so used to, you know, <laughs> always pumping more money inside. Yes. And th- this is the kind of stuff that I think policy uh, makers should be thinking about. They are not handcuffed. To the existing paradigm, they are not handcuffed. they were, you've got a new alternative right now. Stop thinking about just like okay, transaction and you know back end and payment. Sure, those are the quick wins. Those are things that you should definitely explore. If it's helping you save money and getting you greater efficiency, you'd be foolish not to do it. But you can build up on this, and there's people at the Bank of England who are doing this right now. So Bank of England, I think at the level of thinking, they're pretty. I'd, I'd say that they're up there and with uh, andy haldane and his whole team of people who's working on it uh they're doing some fascinating work so they they might go to a reference point if i want to see like the the best of what can come out of macroeconomics was blockchain plus complexity economics
2: mm-hmm. so yeah
0: no, that's that's a very interesting analysis i i think uh uh there are a lot of different variables that we do still do need to address that, and if we are talking uh, about cryptocurrency, I mean uh, see that this basically comes down to trust and when the current there is a monopoly by governments you know on the currency right now everywhere yeah. all yeah. across nations so uh, and we are trying to remove the cash from the currency, that is the effort of a lot of innovators now mm-hmm. when we are looking at cryptocurrencies uh the It is created entirely through computer code. I mean, if you look at bitcoins or any other currency, so uh, when this is more for computer literate people, because when you have to mine uh, the currency, you know, to get the bitcoins, that requires computer literacy, and not everyone has that. So, this bitcoins and cryptocurrencies are created more for you know, computer literate generation. Uh, I don't agree
1: with that at all.
0: But, but who, how would you, how would the older people mine? How would the people who have no My
1: mother, my mother, she's never read my book. I gave a copy of my book to my mom and she said the print is too small and she kept it on the side. (laughs) Now, she (laughs) communicated
2: Really? That's it.
1: but but she looked at her and know. she's like, "Okay, I'll read it then. I'll read it tomorrow." And tomorrow never came. So I keep whenever I call I'm like, "So, which page are you on?" And she keeps lying to me, and it's this ongoing lying contest. So,
0: the young woman is going to read anything you write, you know. So and <laughs> she's going to get excited. I, I,
1: I hope. I hope she sees this because that will probably motivate her to, <laughs> to, to, to no, do that.
0: Son, When I wrote my first book, I know my son took a copy and he just put it in his you know treasure chest. It <laughs> was a big deal to him, you know. So uh, that that is a familial thing, you know. Every yeah. family. But uh, the,
1: the, the point that I was trying to make with that example is, even though she she's she's not interested in all this stuff, but she loves talking to her grandson, all right, my nephew, and she's become very adept with using you know, like everything, Skype, WhatsApp, this that. She's up there, she's posting stuff. She's out there right now.
0: That's good. That's yes. good. And she wants to keep up with the changing times, but not. You don't see that eagerness or excitement in all elders, in all senior citizens. No, you
1: don't. But but the point of the matter is. Um, she doesn't know how the internet works. If I tell her about TCP/IP and data packets and the way that we, you know, we are sharding this and we're putting it over there and all that stuff, she doesn't care about it. What she cares about is I click this button and I see my grandson's face and I can FaceTime with him. That's it. It's the same thing with these kind of technologies. Yes, the people who are actually creating it have to be technologically very literate, and they are. They're very, very you know, competent, They they know, a lot of stuff in cryptography, encryption, game theory, uh, economic models and all that. Before we were outsourcing all of this stuff to a bank and they were doing it in the centralized function, it worked. It had inefficiencies. We used a new technology to to address those inefficiencies. The only difference is the people who are creating it this time is not a bank. It's these experts and these miners and all these different kinds of people are creating it. I don't mind. I have Bitcoin. I have Ethereum. I, I have invested in a couple of tokens. You,
0: know, you purchase that, right? So but that that's yeah. a different thing. You buying the cryptocurrency is one thing, yeah. and mining it and you know generally... Sure, but
1: that, that's, that's the point. The point that I'm trying to make is, I need to use cryptocurrency for whatever ends and purposes that I want. If I am not technically qualified to to to, to, to mine it and all those different things, that doesn't mean I can't participate. And this yes. is this is the main point. So you, you you're trying to kind of you know you, you, if you don't understand how this stuff works, guess what? You can learn it.
0: Yeah, of okay? course. I agree with your point on that. Yeah. that- it, it's not uh, going to prohibit or prevent your participation. Yeah. So, there must be, there will be ways. I agree to that. There is, you know, everyone will be able to participate. Yeah. But it is still a playing field which is beneficial, uh, you know, more beneficial to computer literate people. And also, so the second point is that the evolution in money that we are seeing now is yeah. very different than the previous ones. The emerging, evolving format of money based on the cryptocurrency, it brings nations and entire different kind of monetary system that is not backed by any government or bank, but is created entirely through computer code. So that is a very really complex challenge. So are, do you think this is going to work where yeah, sure. there is yeah. no one backing it? Yeah, I mean, like what is value in
1: any case? I mean, value comes from anything based on scarcity and difficulty. I mean, those are the two kind of core elements of value. I mean, if I have to go and get something, I have to put in effort and because I have put in the effort and the time and the sweat and the blood in order to get it, I now come to you and say that, well, you know, it took me this much amount of time to write this or to get this. So you are now going to pay me this much amount. And that is some way representative of what effort I've put inside over there. So this is where the value is actually coming from i mean don't forget that every currency the average lifespan of the currency is 34 years okay and there's something which is known as gresham's law which says that good money drives out bad money so during the course of our life it's normal for us to to see like two currencies in our lifetime one will go out the only reason the us dollar has got a, such an extended lifespan is because of the fact that uh, they were able to to get their hooks inside a lot of deals and make it the, the reserve currency of the world to a certain extent so it's an anomaly so the transition of moving from one currency type to another is normal we've seen it throughout history once a certain kind of currency doesn't see, ceases to have a lot of value we can't go to something else you look at fiat currencies today the value comes from the scarcity of it you know that's the reason why you're, you're trying to have basal three laws because it's controlling the amount of debt to capital ratios that are coming out over there. It's the same thing with cryptocurrency. The miners who are creating it, they are putting in work. Proof of work is exactly that. They're using computation power, they're trying to figure out to nonce how many zeros are there in it. And in the process of doing that, they do that whole hash hashing function. And in the process of doing that, they're presenting to the world, I have done the work in order to validate these transactions. You can verify it because once you've done it, you know, the format of the, the hash that comes out after you do this this work, it ends up a certain kind of a form. So it's like taking a jigsaw puzzle and arranging it in a way to make it a, a rectangle. And you show the world that here, yeah, I've done the work, I put the jigsaw puzzle together, it's a rectangle. Everyone says, yeah, he's done it. And you get paid in Bitcoin for that. So it's this combination of the work that's put inside and the scarcity of the amount of this, this, this um, asset, you could say, this token. That's where the value actually lies, and any kind of monetary system. I mean, don't forget, Jayshree, money is imaginary. We came up with it, you know, and a lot of people forget about that quite often. So, I agree with the fact that you know, we are moving to a new kind of way of thinking about the concept of um, quantifying value. And before it was a lot more simple, we used to have gold, then, after Bretton Woods, we said, Okay, no more gold, now we're going towards. Uh, Fiat currency and from fiat currency. We said okay. This is the way that we're going to be able to value the the value. What is the value of one dollar compared to euro and they said oh, it's based on all these different kinds of parameters But it's always related to scarcity and the amount of output that a country can actually give so that's the work You're having a similar kind of analogy with this very young technology, which is essentially rewriting the same story But the precepts on what they're rewriting that hasn't changed at all right? So that that's that's the way that I look at it. It's just a transition.
0: Sure, sure. Now, I, I hear your point on that. Now, going back to the point that you made about miners, that they put in work, so they get paid, you know, in the uh, terms of, you know, getting bitcoins or any other cryptocurrency, which is fair that they are putting in work. But I have a big problem when they use other people's computers without their permissions, you know, and uh, try to do mining. That's where, you know, I think it gets... Uh, off-limits that uh, no but no miner has a right to use other people's computer. You know, then you are not getting paid on your work. You are stealing other people's, you know, competing power. And uh, of oh, that, uh, that is not, uh, that should be a law against, you know, these miners using Can, other can
1: you people. explain that example a bit more? Because I'm, I'm a bit confused. What I know about miners is, yeah, some of these miners might hack uh, someone else's computer. Um, but most miners, they have their own investment. They have their own grid.
2: It's very expensive. Sure, I'm
0: not talking about most miners. There, I mean, there are there are uh, lot of miners who are. I don't have an exact example to give you, mm-hmm. but they, this this has been reported widely that you know they use other people's computer. They uh, use other people's you know electricity and all the sets, and they do the mining. That is uh, there is lot written about that. Uh, you'll be able to see that on internet. You know there are a lot of mm-hmm. articles about that that you know, this, there should be some law against it. and it, I'm sure that you know, this uh, cryptocurrency industry is also aware about this problem, and uh, I think there should be some laws against it because you are not uh, no, nobody should be allowed to use other people's assets without uh, you know...
2: Yeah, sure. yeah, uh, no that.
0: So having said that, you have been actively working in this. World. What are some of the big concerns you have as we move towards cashless economy?
1: It's a long list. I'm trying to figure out what is the, like, maybe
2: one or two points.
0: Well, especially, part. I mean, uh, the points that you would like to emphasize so that these young minds that are out there who are thinking about how to solve big problems, how to create, you know, uh, some advantage uh, systems, you know, to help yeah. the nation or the humanity, you know, those kind of, you know, big problems that still needs to be solved around this. My
1: my main problem right now is with the ICOs and the speculation. I mean, I think there's just been a gigantic quantity of bullshit that's been associated with it. And they took this really interesting idea. And uh, to be honest, I don't, I, I don't feel sorry for anyone who got scammed by it. Because this technology, it's hard stuff. Okay, you need to if you want to invest in it, you need to spend around two three months solid, just kind of getting into it and absorbing all of it. Anyone who comes up to me, I mean, I'm surprised by the number of people who have told me, "Yeah, I'm, I'm investing in, in tokens or ICOs," and I'm like, "Oh, did you read Satoshi's paper?" And they're like, "Huh, I don't know what that is." So they don't even know the you know the the, the, the basic principles. Um, so there's because of I'm I'm, I'm angry about it more than anything else than concerned because there's so much speculation that's happened. And it was, you know, we saw that in 2017 when the price of the Bitcoin just skyrocketed and hit like $20,000 at one point of time. So what I think is what concerns me is the fact that um, this misuse of this technology in that way and the fact that there are people out there who are doing crazy things like pump and dump schemes right now. Mm-hmm. in which they inflate the price of the token and then they crash it immediately. Um, if you try to do that with stocks, you'd go to jail. <laughs> that's like insider trading and stuff like that. Um, but it's, it's happening in a very rampant kind of a way in the in, in blockchain. So now, kudos yeah. to them. It, it, it's self-correcting because certain actors saw that this was happening. They kind of raised their hand and they said, that's wrong. That is something which really concerns me today because it, it gives this negative connotation to this very promising technology right. and i think that's what people need to kind of develop you know if you don't speculate if you want to speculate fine but do it in a way in which you nevertheless exhibit a mature relationship with this technology Yes, and that's not the case today it's not at all the case and that that's that's a primary concern for me because it represents the the mindset more than anything else and it's very hard to change that
0: yes absolutely and that's an excellent example the hype around icos is so be you know Crazy that uh, people are losing their ability to see what is you know genuine and what is not genuine. And uh, you the what you talked about the bitcoin, you know, it's an excellent example because the whole ecosystem that is supposed to grow in parallel to protect those kind of incidents is not there. Like you said, you know, if that had happened, uh, you know, in trading, inside of trading, people would have gone to jail, but it doesn't happen in the because, and cryptocurrencies, because there is, the system has not developed and has not matured. Yeah,
1: and, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's happened in, in the, the contemporary financial system as well. You know, you look at what happened in, in the market crash, which happened in the 1930s. You look at Bonzi schemes, you look at Bernie Madoff. You look at all these different things which have happened. That's fine. So that, that's kind of like my point about it. And that's the reason I got into uh, money by design. So, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about that project because I want to be able to show that there is an alternative to the speculation.
2: Yes, please go ahead.
1: So, the Money by Design project was created by Olivier Roca and I joined him a little bit later on and we co-wrote the white paper together. So, you can find it on moneybydesign.io. And my problem with this, you know, the speculation and ICOs when I met Olivier and I started speaking to him about it, he said, I think there's a way that we can address this issue. And he cited Metcalf's law. And Metcalfe's Law, uh, have you heard of Metcalfe's Law?
0: No, I am not
1: So Metcalfe's Law is like when the internet was first kind of becoming the internet. There was this transitionary period in which you had the ethernet. And Metcalfe, Bob Metcalfe was the guy who essentially created the ethernet. Um, and what he realized was he, he started off with this marketing gimmick. <laughs> it was essentially a marketing gimmick in which he told the salespeople that if you need to, what you need to convince the um end users is that if they're buying computers and and installing an ethernet over there then the value of that ethernet is going to increase based on the number of users that they have so the more users they have the more they can share information the more they can get value from this Um, and what he did was he essentially he, he had done this a little bit before so he created this very simplistic graph in which he said that the value is proportional to the square of the number of users 40 years down the line, it's become Metcalf's law. So he didn't, he didn't call it Metcalf's law, someone else did. Um, and 40 years later, he said, you know what, let me check if this actually makes sense. Because when you say it's a law, that means it's like a, something that you know exists throughout eternity. So he went to Facebook. And uh, he managed to get data for 10 years on the number of users and the value of Facebook. And value over here was represented by the revenue that they were creating, which was generally from And what he found was this very beautiful kind of graph, it was like a sigmoidal curve, like a logarithmic kind of a curve, which showed that, yes, the value is proportional to the square of users. So I found that pretty interesting. And what was even more interesting was two years later on, there was a few mathematicians and researchers in China who repeated the same thing with uh, Tencent. And they used the same time scale and they looked at Tencent. And Tencent is a very different kind of a network compared to um, what's called uh, Facebook. But they found the same kind of curve again. So the moment that we saw this, we said that, okay, fine. Is there a way for us to be able to give an intrinsic value of a token? If you're taking a token and we don't want to be doing the speculation nonsense, we have to be able to say that this token's price is connected to some intrinsic value because don't forget that the blockchain is essentially an endogenous monetary system right so we said okay fine metcal is kind of you know helping us kind of figure that out and what we found later on was we kind of explored this idea and we were able to figure out that we can actually tie the value of the token to the size and the connectivity of the network just because you have a number of users, that's not enough. You need this ecosystem to, to live, it has to breathe. And the way that it's actually breathing and, and, and showing value is when the connectivity is happening between it. And we came up with a formula, which you can find in our white paper, that the value of the token is related to the number of users. And the formula that we came is P is equal to, P in this case is the price of the token, is equal to 0.01 multiplied by N where N represents the number of users to the power of 5 by 4. And the reason it's 5 by 4 is because we looked at a lot of social dynamic structures and we found that there's this power law that's over there. So it's 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 a bit exponential, but it's not a complete exponential kind of a curve, right? Um, we call this the scaling factor. And once we, we kind of got this um, concept, you know, going on. We then said, okay, fine. How do we ensure that um, we can actually control the price as well? Right. And we find that the control actually happens based on the number of transactions. If you have a number of people who, are, who have tokens, but they're just holding on to the tokens, they're not really doing anything with it, then it's not something which should have a lot of value, because the value is then based on speculation. They're hoping that it's going to be used, so they hold on to it. So what we said was we can actually figure out a way in which the number of transactions and the liquidity per se of the token can have an effect on the price and it can be used in a control mechanism. Once again we did a bit of calculations and what we were able to find out was, we, what we decided upon was, let's say that the previous day there was a certain amount of exchange of value or in, in with the tokens, we use that as a reference and once we use that as a reference we then were able to say that um, If the amount of transactions falls below a certain threshold limit, then the value of the token will go down, or the price of the token will go down. So it's an auto-correcting mechanism, which doesn't um, incentivize you to hold on to it, right? And based on my calculations, what we were able to figure out was that um, um, if there is no change, let's say that the amount of transactions is the same, um, then, um, sorry, if there's no transaction compared to the previous day, then the first day, the value would go down by minus 0.8%. If it's, it's, if it's just half the amount of transactions that happened the day before, it would be minus 0.4%. And you kind of build this up. If it goes up to three months, it's going to become um, 70% less. And if it, there's no transactions at all for an entire year, then the value will be completely zero. And we've we proved this mathematically. So there's a paper which shows all of this stuff mathematically. Um, I'm just going to look at my, the, the calculation that we did, because what we figured out was based on Metcalfe's law and this way in which we're trying to control the price of the token based on the utilization of the token, we came up with this beautiful curve, which was you know, very representative of the same thing as Metcalfe's law. And if you have one user today, we have selected that the price of the token is going to be 10 cents. Oh, sorry one euro cent okay one cent uh, once you come up to let's say around a hundred thousand based on these variables that we put in place and these control mechanisms the value would go up to let's say 17 cents and when you get to 100 million users the price of the token would be 1.8 cents uh, 1.8 euros sorry okay so it kind of like builds up in this way And what the Money by Design project has essentially done is found out a way in which, based on the usage and the size of the network, that you can have an actual intrinsic token price. And if you want to to speculate it, remember that speculation happens on exchanges. So we don't want to put our stuff on those exchanges. And the reason that we made this choice is because we are essentially creating a blockchain with a token which has multiple functionality and at the same time has got this stable price attached to it because this stability is what can be uh, used by large institutions i'm talking about central banks i'm talking about you know big big institutions which today try to kind of help us govern our our, our economy the reason that banks don't want to be able to switch to the blockchain or they want to use the blockchain only for payment transactions is because if they try to use a token this volatility that happens with tokens completely undermines their value so by showing that we can actually create a token which can be stabilized based on very simple parameters and with a very, it's quite simplistic actually, the calculation, we have been able to show that, yeah, we can actually provide you with a blockchain with multifunctionality and a token which you can use because the price is stable. And you can see all of it happening right there. So it's, it's, it's the first time that someone's actually kind of looked at it this way. I'm pretty sure that as time goes on and more and more people Realize that ICOs need to be done in a much more sensible way. That this is definitely going to become a norm. And it's the reason why BNP Paribas is working along with us. Uh, we're in talks with the World Bank and the IMF. Um, we're kind of showing this to them. We've also spoken to the Authority Marché which is the uh, the financial control authority in France. Um and all of them are kind of looking into this because You remember what we had mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation. We need to be able to have some way in which this centralized system needs to communicate with this decentralized system. And the only way that you can do that is you give the centralized system the necessary tools for them to do their existing functions, augment their existing functions, and still provide some sense of stability. This project is related exactly to that.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. Where can we find... (coughs) Sorry
1: about that. Where can we find the white paper? What is the website? uh... So it's moneybydesign.io. We just about finished this new predictive formula uh, because we had to get a couple of people who work uh, as traders, who work with uh, exchanges. That's not my area of speciality. Um, I was actually taken on as a scientific advisor and writing the white paper in terms of kind of like saying that, okay, fine. It was an extension of a lot of the ideas that I'd expressed in my book. But this kind of, you know, the mathy stuff which needs to be done, we needed to get someone who was better qualified than me. Um, And he just finished this. So this is, it's really new. We've already got the white paper out on the website. Um, It's a 77-page white paper, so it's not a quick read. But we're going to be adding this stuff inside because this offers investors... a much more interesting way of looking at it, especially institutional investors. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We don't want the institution. Um, we don't want uh, investors or speculators. We want investors who are users. Sure. And if you want to use it and you want to, you know, you can, you can come inside and you can see the price. You can see exactly what's going on. You can understand the way that the intrinsic value of this token is, is calculated. Um, the more people join, the more use that it has, the value goes up, right? And if the trading stops, it will auto-correct itself. So we are not looking for, you know, that one day I wake up and I find my—we call it the geo token. Um, I don't want to find the geo token trading at, you know, twenty thousand uh, uh, dollars a token, because that means that it's not—it's not fungible anymore. It's not something that can be used properly to to sustain an economy. And we we have been completely obsessed with this concept of really liberating the, the power of the blockchain
0: to institutions. Yes, I see that. What would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially about your book, The Blockchain Alternative and where they can find it?
1: Oh, so yeah, you can get The Blockchain Alternative on Springer. So you can go to Springer's website, you can go to A-Press, you can go to Amazon. It's available on Amazon. Um, you, you just put The Blockchain Alternative and you should be able to find it pretty easily. Um, the book is um, it's an introductory book. It's a bit academic because I've published with Springer, so you know, you've got to be a bit academic when you publish with them. Um, but there's a lot of concepts which I introduced over there. It's only got four chapters. It's around 250 pages, but it's, it's got four chapters. And what I'm trying to provide in that book was, the motivation for it was, let's have this kind of a conversation. You know, why are we always conversing about the applications of blockchain? We should be conversing about the implications of it and for implications especially large-scale implications let's start thinking about this concept of a sovereign level blockchain so there's a lot of things which i've said over there which are just conversation starters because i wanted this book to be a precursor to to anything else um i talk about um i, I pointed a lot of flaws with the existing system i then talk about um, what my conception is about this you know sovereign-level blockchain and the final chapter is actually completely dedicated to complexity economics because I needed people to understand the match between complexity, economics, and, you know, so it's problem, solution, future. That's kind of like the way that it's organized.
0: Good, good, No, very good. I look forward to reading that. And I'm sure our global viewers and listeners are also, you know, going to be interested in that book, to get that uh, foundational understanding about the blockchain and the, uh, what it could lead to, and the kind of uh, future and the tomorrow that it could provide all of us and all the systems. Across nations. So, thank you so much, Kerry, for participating in this roundtable today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on cashless economy and uh, especially blockchain. Our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the understanding you provided uh, on how the blockchain alternate helps us to take a step forward. So even if a single individual or entity can innovate and help the broader financial industry take a step forward, based on the understanding they receive from this discussion we had today. This discounted dialogue has been of service, and we thank you for that.
1: Pleasure, thank you so much for having
0: me on. Wonderful. So while there is a growing excitement that cashless economy makes the, it marks the beginning of a new era. There are many complex challenges <laughs> that be overcome. This group, cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security Resource centers, are created to identify, evaluate, and manage. The risk-facing NGIOA in the denominations with government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at risk believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. So security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict. Risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the two without the existence of the other two. All three can't conflict into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to other risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast. Just go to -to riskgrouplc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.